You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. This is the talk that will really test your metal. We're going to find out what, what everybody's staying power is. I am in a, I am in a dad's band. Uh, I play guitar in a band composed of a mixture of physicians and lawyers and um, a random mix of others that uh, all going through our midlife crisis decided that being in a band was a lot cheaper than a sports car. Um, so the funny part is the band name, which I wouldn't have brought up, but given the topics of today, our band name is called Vertical Mattress. <laughs> so very, very, you know, there are only certain crowds that get that joke, but you guys get the joke. So um, we're going to talk about the, 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 I was tasked with talking about genodermatoses that matter or, or something like that. And I thought, well, for this group, doing what you do, what genodermatoses really matter? And honestly, I've been on a kick a little bit recently in my career, uh, doing a lot with uh, different genodermatoses, inherited syndromes, with a predisposition to malignancy. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit today with you. Now, these are complicated disorders. Some of them are rare. Some of them may seem very esoteric. And, but there, there's a reason why it's good to know about them. First of all, there aren't many other areas of medicine where people are aware of them. And so these patients, and I promise you they are out there. You may think, my, I, I had a resident one time stop me and, and say, Dyer, why do you make us learn about all these really rare genetic syndromes? And the reason I do is, it's not like you have to remember all the facts or exactly which gene is involved, but you need to have your brain sensitized because at some point in your career, somebody's going to come through your clinic, you're going to be seeing a patient where the, the constellation of their different skin findings is going to make you think, wait a minute, I seem to remember some talk where, where some you know, bearded dad band guitar player was talking about some, some weird genetic thing. I, there's a bell ringing and you're going to look it up and you're going to help somebody figure out what they've got. Because I can promise you in my career, I'm astounded at how often these patients come walking in and it's not like they all know they've got stuff. Sometimes they have no idea they have anything. There's no family history because they're the first one in their family. Sometimes there is a family history and, they, and it's just, oh, you've got the family spots or, the, or, or what have you. And so it's very, very important to be aware of these conditions. And I'll start with one of my favorites. So this is Marie. And Marie was a, uh, a woman who lived in, um, in Minneapolis-St. Paul area who came in to see a physician, a oral and maxillofacial surgeon at the University of Minnesota named Bob Gorlin. And she came to see him because she had these cysts in her jaw. And Gorlin, for those of you who, who don't know, um, Dr. Gorlin was a an incredible clinician. Even though he was an oral and maxillofacial surgeon, he paid attention to everything about the patients. And he noticed that Marie had these funny little spots on her face and had had a history of some skin, uh, uh, what they called basal cell epitheliomas at the time being removed. And he noticed that when he went in to work on the cyst in her jaw that she had other cysts. And, and so he started working her up. This is the famous Dr. Gorlin. And Marie is the index patient of with what we call Gorlin syndrome, or basal cell nevus syndrome. And it was because of Dr. Gorlin's astute association of 
her, the, the growths that she had in her jaw and the, growth, the growths that she had on her skin, that when he evaluated her, he started looking around and found other patients with these types of cysts, and lo and behold, they also had more of these little skin tumors than people thought. And so, thus became one of the most prominent inherited syndromes that we see in dermatology. This is where it came from. And so, um, this is why it's called Gorlin syndrome. I actually got that years ago at a conference for Gorlin syndrome. I got sat at dinner next to Dr. Gorlin and got to listen to him just go on and on about all these different stories of wild patients and things that he'd done. He was an incredible guy and could remember he could remember patients that he'd seen decades before. It was just remarkable. So Gorlin syndrome is autosomal dominant. That means that it only takes one mutation to manifest the disease. So we all have two copies of every gene. And if in, in the case of the patch gene, which is typically the gene that's mutated in Gorlin syndrome, if you have one defective patch gene, even though the other one's good, you'll still have the syndrome. So that means each time you have a child, you give your, your future child one of your patched genes. So if they get the good gene, fine. If they get your, your mutated gene, then they also have Gorlin syndrome. So with an autosomal dominant disorder, it's a 50-50 chance with every, live, every uh, pregnancy that the baby will have the disease. Importantly though, up to a quarter to a third of these patients are de novo mutations. That means they're the first in their family. So just you can have Gorlin syndrome and not have a family history. Um, patched is a tumor suppressor gene, and uh, it, um, it, so it keeps a pathway, a growth pathway, damped down, and when it's missing, that pathway is overactive, and different cell lines where that pathway is important overgrow. That's why you get the basal cells, that's why you get the other findings. The major criteria are listed here, the special keratocysts of the jaw, they're almost like basal cells of the, of the jaw. Uh, the multiple basal cell carcinomas of the skin. Very often young children, as the picture on the lower right shows you, will have these little yellow-brown, what are called, they look, many, many times look just like a nevus, and, but if you biopsy them, they look like little basal cells. Those are the basal cell nevi. And there is another gene that can, when mutated, can lead to a very similar phenotype called SUFU. The only thing to know about that is those patients tend not to have the jaw cysts, but they are a much higher risk for an internal cancer called medulloblastoma, a, a rare type of brain tumor. Um, and that is the internal malignancy that's important with Gorlin syndrome. There's a variety of other features of overgrowth. How many here have seen patients with basal cell nevus syndrome? Yeah, a lot of us, I figured. And you notice how many of those patients are, are somewhat, they're big or they're, they're, they're somewhat overgrown or they tend to be sort of, you know, they're not, um, different parts of their body are a little bit more overgrown than others. That's all a manifestation of that, of the outcome of that genetic mutation. Better watch it or I'm gonna eat, eat up my time here, so. And uh, this is the pathway that's involved. So. What, do we, what about the skin stuff? Well, the basal cell nevi tend to show up before puberty. They tend to behave in a benign fashion. So one of the things that I really try and stress to people is you do not have to treat every single one of these little basal cell nevi. They just sit there. After puberty, what will start happening is you can see some of them activate, start growing, and you'll see actual more, uh, more aggressive basal cells grow. 
And, um, and if they get bad enough, then I treat those. But you gotta remember that these patients will, they're gonna have a lifetime of intervention with their skin cancer, so you, you can't swing for the fences on every single one or you'll leave them a scarred up mess. Fortunately, we have drugs um, like Vismotigib, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, the odontogenic keratosis are these big lucencies that you'll see in the jaw. They can be the presenting problem. One of our patients at Missouri was just eating dinner one night and his jaw broke because he had such a large cyst that it had weakened his mandible and when he bit down on his piece of steak it fractured and that's how he figured out that he had Gorlin syndrome and so it's important to have surgical intervention for these with an experienced oral surgeon someone who knows how to get in there and get the get them out because in, in a way they're kind of like a basal cell of the jaw and they can recur Patients will have these pits on the palms and soles. Uh, each of those looks like a little basal cell as well. And they can have a few other physical findings. Uh, the medulloblastoma that I talked about is uh, something that tends to occur in childhood. It occurs in up to 5% of patients, but many of those patients have that special mutation in that SUFU gene. And then females with Gorlin syndromes can have ovarian, <coughs> Gorlin syndrome can have ovarian fibromas. So, Gorlin's is one of those great conditions where because we understood the genetic defect, we understood the impact that that had on this pathway. And so drugs targeting that pathway were developed to try and block that effect. In a way, it's like what, what's happening here is like the brakes have been taken off the car. That's what happens. A tumor suppressor gene is like a brake on this growth pathway. If it's missing, the brakes are missing, and the car just keeps accelerating. So you've got to find another way to interrupt it. And uh, although this is a drug that has its own issues and many side effects, it really can uh, reduce the growth or reduce the size of the basal cells in these patients. It can be, um, uh, have quite a dramatic impact. The problem is, is that once you stop the drug, the basal cells start regrowing. So actually what's been happening more, more recently, uh, how many here, anybody here have patients on Vismotigib? Yeah, a number of you, great. So one of the things that I think is in the future for Vismotigib is getting away from this concept that we have to just pound people into the ground with that, with that uh, medication, that we have to just keep them on it constantly. I see a future where, uh, and there are several investigators and colleagues of mine that are looking into this, where we treat patients either for a week a month or intermittent therapy, with the goal being just to suppress the growth of the basal cells rather than keeping them on daily doses of the drug, which has so many more side effects. And early, early data would suggest that these intermittent regimens can be effective but minimize side effects. And uh, this, pu this publication I just thought was interesting. When counseling our patients with basal cell nevus syndrome, um, it does appear that actually uh, sunburns uh, are related to the severity of their basal cells. So the sun protect, you know, there's always been a debate of, oh, with, with Gorlin's, do we recommend, uh, we always recommend sun protection, but did it mean anything? And this paper suggests that uh, that is good advice. Um, so I'm not going to belabor the different types of treatment. We've kind of talked about that already. I want to touch on a few other syndromes while I have time. Um, Muratore syndrome is probably not really its own thing, but in dermatology, I notice that we still often refer to it as its own thing. So I think it's okay to talk about it that way. This is another autosomal dominant 
in uh, tumor syndrome, in this case, typically a defect in one of the genes, uh, one of the DNA mismatch repair genes that are part of the, what we call the hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer family or Lynch syndrome family. And so the thing that, the reason why Miratore may not be a real thing is there are large families with this autosomal dominant disorder where many people in the family will get the colon cancers and you know, Uncle Bob will have a bunch of sebaceous neoplasms like a Muratore patient, but his son, who's got the same DNA mutation, doesn't have any sebaceous neoplasms. So it's, it's part of the spectrum that you can see, but um, it, it may not be its own thing. So the, the real interesting thing about Muratore syndrome is these patients grow a lot of either benign or malignant sebaceous gland growths, sebaceous adenoma, epithelioma, and sebaceous carcinomas. And they grow them all over their sun-exposed face. We think about sebaceous carcinomas around the eyes, but in this case, these are in other places as well. Sometimes you can have, there's a clue that they have Muratore because if you look at their lips, they'll have prominent Fordyce spots. These are the sebaceous glands that you see on the inside of your lip, the little yellow dots. And um, it, it appears to be much more frequent that those are found in these patients. They can have a variety of other uh, tumors, uh, colon adenocarcinoma proximal to the splenic flexure is the classic one, but a variety of other tumors are reported in these patients. So if you have a patient where you diagnose a sebaceous carcinoma uh, that is atypical, you really should be thinking about Muratore syndrome, even if, there's, even if there's really just one, but certainly if you get a patient where you biopsy a few spots and there's an adenoma and an epithelioma, then you really want to be thinking about Muratore syndrome, take a good family history, and make sure they've got, they're up to date on their colonoscopy and cancer screening. Gardner syndrome is a, another autosomal dominant uh, colon cancer syndrome. Gardner syndrome is interesting because we, it's in all of the DERM books, and the incidence is always quoted at 1 to, one to 8,000 to 16,000 live, live births. And I've always, how many here have seen a Gardner syndrome patient? Yeah, that's how I feel, not a single hand, right? So the, what I, these numbers come from, the, again, the group of cancer syndromes that Gardner is a part of. It is part of the familial adenomatous polyposis cancer syndromes. And um, these, are the, these are all the result of mutations in this APC gene. These are patients that have just two innumerable polyps in their colon with, a, with an extraordinarily high risk of degeneration into malignancy over time, almost 100%. And some of the members of those families will have this phenotype where they make these epidermoid cysts. That, uh, you know, now, we see a lot of epidermoid cysts, so what makes you think that somebody might have Gardner's syndrome? Well, they're weird epidermoid cysts. They show up early in life, in childhood. They may be congenital. They may uh, be in odd locations where you don't normally see them, like lower on a leg or in, in weird places like that. Um, they can have features of pilomatricomas within them. So they may not be just your run-of-the-mill epidermal, epidermal inclusion cyst or epidermoid cyst. So they're different. 
a little bit. And then uh, early in life, they may increase in number and then stabilize. These patients will often also have other abnormalities, so it helps to know about them. I've had a few patients over time where I kind of wondered about Gardner's syndrome. And so they'll have uh, osteomas, especially the membranous bones of the, of the face and the head, so the maxilla and the forehead. Uh, history of thyroid carcinoma, the so-called desmoid tumors. So if a patient's ever been operated on and had the development of a desmoid tumor, and they've also got epidermal, epidermoid cysts, you, might, you would wonder about gardeners. They can also have some odd other findings. So one, if I'm suspecting gardeners, the question I ask is, have you ever had an eye exam and was there anything funny in your eye exam? Because these patients will have hematomas of the retinal pigment epithelium, these little dark spots in the back of their eye. And um, they have a very characteristic look and this can be something where, for example, if you've got a, a young patient who's got a parent who you think might have gardeners, you can look in, in the, even in the eyes of the young patient, it can be one of the earliest findings of the syndrome. Um, the, the gut lesions are allelic to the familial adenomatous polyposis, like I said, and um, these are the patients that you want to pick up early because you need to do a prophylactic colectomy while they're young before cancer develops and, um, and uh, leads to their early demise. So Gardner syndrome, I think, is much rarer than the numbers in the books that are quoted would, would, would give it credit for, but it is something to be aware of. All, there's this constellation of findings that, in, you know, the patients with multiple cysts, epidermoid cysts, are going to be in our, our wheelhouse, and we're the only ones who has any clue about something like a pilometricoma. So I think it's important to be aware of Gardner syndrome. Okay. Pete Jaeger's syndrome is another one that tends to come through our door. I, one of my favorite moments, and this is about 10 years ago, we had a pediatric GI doctor who got interviewed on the news and there was all this stuff because he was taking care of this girl with Pete Jaeger syndrome. But of course, like, who, who actually diagnosed the girl with Pete Jaeger syndrome? Dermatology, you know. Um, it's an autosomal dominant disorder, and again, there's an even higher rate of spontaneous mutation. 40, sometimes 50% of these patients are the first ones in their family. So there may not be a backstory there. These are the patients that have the striking pigmented macules, especially on the lips. They're usually there in the first years of life. Um, they may be there congenitally or they develop in the first few years of life. The thing that's interesting is uh, you can see them in other places like on the digits, the nails, and the palms and soles. They gradually fade with time so that you can't, just because you look at their, the, these kids' parents and don't see these on their lips doesn't mean they, ha they don't have Pete Jaeger syndrome. Um, let's see if I've got, yeah, I think these are pretty good pictures. Now, but typically the, the lentigines on the buccal mucosa remain. So even though the external appearance may look normal, if you look inside their mouth, you might see some. So this, I will often examine parents of kids that I suspect might have a syndrome. In Pete Jaegers, there's a variety of different tumors that can develop. Again, hemorrhotomatous polyps of the GI tract, uh, but in this case, the small greater than the large intestine occur. Many of these patients, one of the, way, one of the screening questions you can ask, if you're seeing a kid with these lentigines in clinic, you can say, well, have they ever had problems with their gut? cramping, if they ever had uh, abdominal surgery, or in, intussusception, because there's a fairly high rate of intussusception around in the locations of these polyps in the small intestine. 
When I was training, we thought that Peach Jaeger syndrome really didn't have much of a, of a, uh, of a severe malignancy risk, but actually it's, it's the exact opposite. We now recognize there's a number of different tumors that you can get with Peach Jaeger syndrome, many of which are listed here, breast tumors, GI, pancreatic, there's some uh, very typical um, testicular tumors that can be seen, and then a very rare form of cervical cancer that's called adenoma malignum. Again, these are not, you don't need to necessarily remember all these things apart from the fact that if these skin findings are present, these patients may need more of a, a, more of a detailed workup. And when the diagnosis or suspected diagnosis of Peach Yeagers is made, it, when I've got a patient now with, where I think they might have Peach Yeagers, we get genetic testing very early on. It's much easier to get now. And the implications of making this diagnosis for a young person's future health are profound, especially because of the screening program it puts them into. They're going to be getting screening done um, very, very aggressively, starting at a fairly early age, as you can see here. Cowden syndrome is a, um, uh, another tumor syndrome due to mutations in the P10 gene. These are patients where, again, the manifestations of these mutations are more common in females than males. I've got a whole family of Cowdens that I'm taking care of right now. Um, it, most of the findings occur in the second to third decade. So they, the mom got diagnosed and now she's bringing in all the kids and the truth is like there's not much point in me seeing the kids because they don't really have much of anything. Uh, there's a variety of skin lesions that are, that are found in patients with Cowden's syndrome. The classic skin lesion is, uh, is these little warty-like growths called trichelomomas. Um, my, one of my co-residents called them trichelomumus because of the histologic appearance. Can look, kind of look like a cow with uh, horns or something like that. They can have mucosal papillomas. You can see all the little bumps around the gums in this gentleman here on the right. Acral keratotic papules, they're really kind of underwhelming. They almost look like little stucco keratoses scattered on um, around the ankles and around the wrists. But in this case, you're seeing these kind of stucco keratoses in a guy that's 20 years old. So the, it's a little unusual, the, the age of the patient. Variety of other skin tumors are reported, lipomas, angiomas, this what's termed a sclerotic fibroma. If you take off a firm, almost like DF-like kind of growth on a patient and you get back histology suggesting sclerotic fibroma, you need to think about Cowden syndrome. The tumors that are associated with Cowden's include breast, a variety of breast tumors, both benign and malignant, thyroid tumors and GI. My patient here, you can see the size of his thyroid um, at even at, uh, I think he was 2021 at this point. So these are patients, again, we're not going to be doing the, all that workup. We're going to be making the diagnosis and hooking these patients up with appropriate specialists to follow them over time. Now this is a classic, so this is one of my favorite stories from fellowship. My, uh, my boss in Chicago, Amy Power, got called by a pediatrician who says, I've got this little kid, he's got freckles on the glands of his penis. So Amy Power asked one question and made the diagnosis. And the question was, well, does he have a big head? And the doctor says, why, yes, he does. And so this is a variation of Cowden syndrome that, that go, that's called Banyan riley ruvalcaba syndrome. And in male, it tends to show up in males, and you have this constellation of features, macrocephaly and a, and a pigmentation on the glands. The thing that's interesting about the, this variation of, of Cowden's, it's allelic, so they have the same mutations in the P10 gene that patients with Cowden's have. But 
there, there aren't many of them that have ever gotten cancers. So we don't really know what to do with them. So we just monitor them a lot like they've got true Cowden syndrome. Um, they can have GI polyps, but there haven't been many of them that have actually gone on to get malignancies. So, but it's a very striking phenotype, so it's good to be aware of. One that you'll be, uh, or you may be asked about, is uh, this condition, which is hereditary leiomyomatosis with renal cell carcinoma, or Reed syndrome. Who's here seen the Reed syndrome? Yeah, I figured there'd be a few hands. So this is, this is one of those sneaky ones that is, it's, it's out there more than you think and it gets missed and that's why I put it in here because it's, up to, it's often up to the dermatologist to pick up on it. There's a variable skin phenotype but the real typical thing are, is the growth of these lyomyomas. These are little smooth muscle tumors. They often are on the trunk, often on the shoulders. There'll be these purple red little firm growths. They can be sensitive to touch and um, kind of bothersome. There's uh, data out there suggesting the use of 5% lidocaine patches to help with that. Because these patients will make so many, it's not like you can remove them all. They can also have uterine li lyomyomas, a history of fibroids, and uh, they can often be quite significant. So if you see a patient who's got these bumps and you're thinking they might be lyomyomas, you can ask if, if they're female, if they've had any, any um, fibroid issues. But this is one of our two conditions where there's an association with renal cell cancer. In the case of Reed syndrome, the renal cell cancer can be aggressive. So picking up these patients early and getting, the, getting them in to be screened and then if there is a tumor getting that kidney out is very, very Im important. It's variable, so just because the person comes from a family with Reed syndrome doesn't mean they're going to have renal cell cancer, but it means they need to be monitored very, very closely. And most of these patients get picked up by the dermatologist. Uh, I won't get into it here, but the, the mutations in Reed syndrome are actually in a, in a metabolic gene something called fumarate hydratase. And it, they're just now figuring out how it is that these mutations lead to, um, lead to, the, muta lead to uh, the further development of the tumors in these patients. And I'm going to skip through that because it's not on the test. The other skin tumor syndrome with an association with kidney cancer is Burt-Hogg-Dubé syndrome. And its autosomal dominant patients will have these very characteristic skin lesions called fibrofolliculomas, um, or a, a variation of them is something called a trichodiscoma. Who here has seen Burt-Hogg-Dubé? It's not rare. It's, it's not that rare. I just diagnosed one uh, within the last few weeks. Now, the, the thing about the fibrofolliculomas is there'll be these little skin-colored papules with these little dilated osses inside them. So basically it's the, it's the pore of the follicle with the growth around it. They have a real characteristic look and once you get the feel for that, you, that's one of the things that'll, that'll help you pick up when you've got one of these patients. Because these folks don't come in when they're young. They come in in middle age, they're in for, my last one she was in for a skin check and she's got all these little bumps and, and sure enough you biopsy it and it's trichodiscomas. The renal cell carcinoma in burdog de Bay syndrome tends to be less aggressive than Reed syndrome, but it's still Still, these patients need monitoring. There are kindreds that also get lung cysts and they'll get spontaneous pneumothorax. So making sure if they have any history of that or, or making sure they're appropriately evaluated is important. All right, 
I'm going to run short on time here, so I'm going to go through these last couple ones just to make you aware. Multiple endocrine neoplasia. There's a couple different syndromes that fall under this rubric. Basically, these are uh, cancer syndromes where you tend to get um, tumors of different glands. Um, type 1. Patients will get, they can have a constellation of relatively benign things, angiofibromas, cafe macules, collagenomas, and uh, gingival papules as well. Um, the gene is called menin, and these are the patients that have the 3P tumors, so pancreatic adenomas, parathyroid carcinomas, and pituitary adenomas. And so sometimes those, uh, those skin findings can be a bit of a clue. Some patients will have more pronounced tumors like the one that you see here. We've had one of those through Missouri that was quite striking. He'd been misdiagnosed as neurofibromatosis all of his life until he got his thyroid cancer. Um, multiple endocrine, endocrine neoplasia type 2B is the one that has really, really striking skin findings. These patients are marfanoid. They're tall and thin. They've got these so-called blubbery lips where they've got all these bumps on their, uh, their lips look very thick and full like somebody did a bad job with some filler. And what those bumps are is a bunch of neural tumors. These patients have a very, very high incidence of developing thyroid cancer. And so they're, they're in known kindreds where this occurs, there's recommendations to get those babies in and get their thyroid out before they're six months old because the thyroid tumors can happen so early. So picking up on these patients with their striking phenotype is important. Um, Carney complex is another endocrine tumor syndrome, one with a lot of skin findings. The things that you need to know about with Carney is these patients, they look a little bit like Pete Yeager's, they'll have the lentigines, but it's not usually just around the lips. It can be scattered all over their, uh, they can have uh, prominent freckles on their face, they can have lentigines scattered over various areas, they can have blue nevi, as well as some other pigmentary findings. These patients will also have benign myxomas of the skin. They can have cardiac myxomas and then uh, a cluster of endocrine tumors which we'll touch on. The thing to be aware of is many carny complex patients are very similar in pigmentation this child here. They have uh, a reddish, um, a, a relatively fair complexion with very reddish hair or um, really striking red hair like you see in the patient down here on the bottom left. And here in this patient up on his eyelids, you can see several small myxomas. The myxomas are subtle, but if you have a patient with the right carny type uh, uh, pigmentary pattern, you want to do a really good skin exam and make sure you don't find any other lumps, bumps, blue nevi, or the like. There's a variety of endocrine tumors that they can get, um, uh, testicular tumors, adrenal tumors leading to Cushing syndrome as well as thyroid tumors and um, a variety of other fairly rare tumors. All right, this is my last one. I'm just a touch over and I apologize, but I'll, I'll get off. So this patient comes in with a mole that gets biopsied and read out as a spitzoid neoplasm suggestive of a new syndrome called BAP1 tumor predisposition syndrome. Who all here has seen BAP1 patients? Good, a few of you. All of you have or will. It's this BAP1 is not rare, and the reason I'm talking about it is because the truth is we don't know what to do with it quite yet. And so I think a lot of these patients are probably being now that it's been recognized, they're getting they're getting picked up fairly early. The derm paths are aware of what these BAP1 uh, nevi or lesions look like under the microscope. So we're picking up on these patients fairly quickly, which is great. 
because, but the problem is we don't really know what to do with them, how to intervene, how aggressively to intervene. We don't even know really how to screen them for the other tumors that they're prone to. So BAP1 stands for BRCA1-associated protein 1. It's a nuclear protein. They can have a variety of different tumors, including some fairly atypical nevi. Many times the nevi will have a spitzoid appearance. It's autosomal dominant, so when you make the diagnosis, you got to go start screening the family and make sure that nobody else has it. Um, and this is a tumor suppressor gene, so once it, when it's missing, you don't, you're not necessarily having a problem until you get a second hit and then you grow a tumor. There are a variety of different tumors that have been reported. The ones to know about, the most common is uveal melanoma. Other patients have had standard melanomas, atypical spits or basal cells, mesotheliomas, and then renal cell carcinomas. So making the diagnosis can be really important. The patients do need some screening, but we don't know how common this is yet. We're just at the tip of the iceberg because this is so new. So this is one that's going to show up in all of your, anybody who's taking these types of moles off, you're gonna, um, you're gonna find one of these at some point. And things that are interesting to know about it, these tumors arise at a younger age. In general, they behave more aggressively than their non-BAP1 counterparts, except for the mesotheliomas, which actually appear to be better behaved than non-BAP1 mesotheliomas. We don't know why. Um, so the current recommendations as it stands, these are kind of effectively made up. Yearly ophthalmology screenings after 16 years of age, some people say start at 11. And then after 30 years of age, do it every six months. Uh, every six month full skin exam, aggressive sun protection. Again, it's a second hit, so you don't want any mutagenic stuff to try and uh, make that second hit. Then annual kidney screening, and then uh, for the kidneys, two-year imaging, especially after 55, then you add abdominal CT. And don't smoke. There are some new drugs that we know interfere with this pathway that are in some early stages of trials. And there I'm going to, oh, I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to, can we just skip to the end since I'm over time? This was going to be a fun one, but we can save it. He's dialing it up. So I apologize for running over. Please don't uh, vote me lower than Rosen just because I ran over. It really is, you know, it's just because there's so much to talk about. There's so much information. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.